This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're beginning chapter 10. We're moving from a narrative section where Matthew puts Christ's power on display back to a didactic section of the Gospel where Matthew records Jesus' teaching. Chapter 10 begins with the call of the Twelve Apostles. That's significant because these were the men that would lead a world-changing spiritual revival after the resurrection. What we'll learn today is that if we were in charge, we would never have chosen these weak and troubled individuals to lead our revival. But Jesus has a different plan and a better way to choose his followers, and we can all be glad of that. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. What we have here in the next several verses is Jesus' choice and commission of the apostles. Now, that's the theme of the next 15 verses. We're going to focus on the first four verses this morning, and I'm calling that the divine choice. Next week, we'll talk about the definite commission. So there is a divine choice and a definite commission. Let's read about the divine choice, verses 1 through 4 in Matthew 10. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So here's what we have here, the divine choice, and we're going to talk about the matter, the mode, and the men of Christ's divine choice, and we're going to extract all the lessons that the scripture here gives us. Let's start with the matter in verse 1. Remember, Matthew is dividing everything by theme, not chronology. And he places the calling of the twelve after Jesus' instruction, presumably to a larger group, for them to beseech the Lord of the harvest for more workers. Now, after empowering them, according to Mark, Jesus sent them two by two. That is in Mark 6, verse 7. And perhaps that's the reason why Matthew lists them here in pairs. They receive authority, and that's the first important lesson we have here. They received authority from Christ. They don't have innate authority. In and in themselves, there is no authority. They received delegated authority from Christ to proclaim the kingdom. Now, likewise, church, you and I have delegated authority. Jesus has commissioned every believer to proclaim the kingdom. Remember the Great Commission passages? And although we do not have the same powers of the first generation of disciples, meaning to heal the sick and the miracle powers here. We have everything we need. Now, the second lesson I want you to know here is that Jesus initiates the choice, and it has nothing to do with their qualification, and that is encouraging, because Jesus Christ is choosing unqualified people that he will qualify for extraordinary ministry. None of them knew anything about soul harvesting. Remember, Jesus tells them, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into the field. And now Jesus says, guess what? You are going to be sent into the field. Some of them were fishermen. There was a tax collector, the most hated man in Capernaum, Matthew. There was a political terrorist in the group, and one of them would betray him. 
Therefore, church, what we learn here is Scripture proves that Jesus Christ alone equips the chosen. Listen to his words to them elsewhere. John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Now, notice the connection again with the harvest theme. I appointed you to go and bear fruit. You did not choose me, but I chose you. In other words, you have nothing to do with this. I put the desire in your heart to respond to the call, and therefore, I am going to appoint you to go and bear fruit. That's the matter of the choice. Let's look at the mode. Verse 2, first part of verse 2. Matthew identifies the disciples as apostles for the first time. That's a Greek term that describes someone sent with a message, endowed with powers. Someone sent out with a message and endowed with specific powers. Now, interestingly, the author of Hebrews uses the same word to describe Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 3 verse 1. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. You see, so after his resurrection, when he commissioned the disciples to go to the nations, he says this, John 20, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. In other words, I am delegating that authority now for you to go into the nations and send the message of the kingdom. What is the message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Enter through the narrow gate. The Father, therefore, sent Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith, to redeem undeserving sinners. The king came to earth. To offer the kingdom to people. And remember, the message of Christ, even from the beginning there, he kept saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And before him, the forerunner, John the Baptist, kept saying the same message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he chose a group, then Christ, of 12 ordinary and unqualified men to proclaim the message. Just to highlight the power of God to equip the people he calls for such extraordinary ministry. Now, 11 of these guys, as we know, would launch the Christian movement after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And for this reason, then, Jesus Christ trained them so that the body of doctrine that some of them would produce could serve as the foundation of the church. That's in Ephesians 2, verse 20. And church, you and I now are building upon that foundation. We have nothing to add, but we teach and we build upon their foundation here. We stand Not shoulder to shoulder with the apostles, but we stand on their shoulders proclaiming the message. And I want you to know that God is going to give us a perpetual reminder of their ministry. When you get to the New Jerusalem, which is where we hold our true citizenship, the Bible says, you will see this, Revelation 21 verse 14. The wall of the city has 12 foundation stones, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Therefore, Christ chose 12 disciples by divine sovereignty, not by human ability. So that's the matter and the mode of the divine choice. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about the men of the divine choice. And we're going to go through each one of them, not the entire list. We're going to save some for next time. Because we want to learn as much as we can from the personalities of these guys. And every time we read about people in the Bible, we identify with them. Because we realize our heroes of the faith are imperfect people just like we are. Therefore, there's hope for me. So Matthew already mentioned five of these names. 4 in chapter 4, in his own conversion in chapter 9. You will remember that. Here, he presents the complete list in six pairs. Like I said, perhaps to indicate that Jesus sent them two by two, which was a brilliant strategy because they would provide comfort and encouragement for one another. And again, because these two verses focus on each individual, we will follow the same format from the text and extract the timeless lessons 
from Christ's choice of ordinary people called for extraordinary service. Let's look at the life of Peter, good old Peter here. He always appears first in the apostolic directories in Scripture. By the way, there are three more of those directories or lists of apostles, one in Mark, one in Luke, and another one in the book of Acts. Now, there's a reason for that, church, not because he was the first pope. He appears first here because he's first among equals. He's a natural leader. God is using his personality here to accomplish much, his convoluted personality. He receives, obviously, more attention by the New Testament writers than any other apostle. And Matthew describes his birth name followed by the epithet that we came to know as Peter. The Greek word that Matthew used to quote Christ here is Petros, Cephas in Aramaic, which means a rock, a boulder, really an illustration, an appropriate illustration of his personality because he is an impulsive guy. He acts before he thinks and his impulsiveness always got him in trouble. But his courage inspires us, more so after Pentecost. Let me give you an example of his courage. We're quick to judge Peter when he walked on water and sank because he had no faith, but he was the first one to walk out of the boat. That's why he's mentioned first, because he's a natural leader. He's acting on impulse. He speaks before he thinks. That's his personality. But his courage inspires us. God used Peter's outspoken personality to reach the multitudes. We need to know that. See, God took a broken man and used that outspoken, impulsive personality to reach the multitudes. Now, according to Luke, Peter introduced his famous sermon, according to Acts verse 14, like this. Men of Judea, all of you who live in Jerusalem, know this and pay attention to my words. Now, that's authority. That's a man who's speaking with authority. Not his own, but the authority of God that Christ delegated to him. And we see that very clearly. Again, more so after Pentecost because he's now filled with the Holy Spirit and he's saying, Men of Judea, you crucified the Messiah. Now, I don't think any of us would recruit such a man. If we knew that someone would deny us three times, we would not involve that person in our project. But Jesus operates by a different standard, and he expects us to apply the same standard that he applies. See, our natural inclination is to act upon fleshly impulses, to cancel people, to say, no, no, you're going to deny me. Well, let me deny you first. But no, Jesus wants us to apply and to live by the same pattern of forgiveness, the same pattern of trust, the same pattern of grace and kindness. Here's what else I want you to know. Some of you outspoken folks identify with Peter because you have a similar personality. You constantly speak before you think. You are constantly putting your foot in your mouth. And if left unrestrained, you will take over leadership of the group because that's your personality, friend. And you know what? God has not made a mistake. Did you know that? God has not made a mistake when he wired you this way. You are a natural leader and he wants to use your imperfections for his glory. Why, church? Because 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says, His power is made perfect in weakness. So it's not about your imperfections. It's about the perfection of God who equips frail people and, and, and flawed people like you and me. And the truth is, the church needs Peters today to lead, to move and shake, to preach boldly, to make unpopular but biblical decisions, to confront heresy to people's face. So if you are a Peter, don't try to change Someone made in the image of God. Have you considered that? The, the point is not changing your personality. The point is channeling that so that God can use you. Being available so that God can make you able. Now let's meet Andrew. The second guy on the list here. His name means manly. 
And he had the same profession as his brother Peter, but the complete opposite personality, which speaks volumes about the wisdom of Christ. Again, if you and I were looking to recruit a group of 12 people to change the world, we would look for people with similar personalities. Not so with Christ, because it's about his power to prepare people for ministry. And here we have Andrew, a guy who is the complete opposite of Peter. His quiet and faithful personality brought people to Jesus, including his brother. Did you know that? Well, Andrew was the guy who brought Peter to Christ. Listen to this. John 1, verses 40 to 42. One of the two who heard John speak and follow him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, Andrew doesn't get a lot of attention like John, for example, another well-known disciple slash apostle. But you know what? Andrew doesn't care. He's not concerned with attention. He, he doesn't want to be in a spotlight. He just wants to bring people to Jesus Christ behind the scenes. Some of you identify with him. In church, may your kind multiply. May your kindness multiply as well. The church needs Andrews to bring people to Jesus, not necessarily from a pulpit. But through personal relationships, Simon told Peter, listen, man, I found the Messiah. You don't need a microphone. You don't need a pulpit. You can just say to your friend, I have found peace. I have found salvation. I have found the one who gives peace that transcends all understanding. And by the way, I have found that my place in heaven is guaranteed. Can I share with you how you can find that too? By the way, guys, just to play on the name here, Andrew, you don't need to be allowed to be a man. Our society is so confused about manhood. Here we have a man's man, someone who was truly a man of God who brings people to Christ quietly and faithfully. Let's talk about James, also known as Jacob, son of Zebedee, the next one on the list. His father's fishing business employed other people according to Mark 1, verses 19 through 20, which suggests to us that the family enjoyed a financially comfortable position. Now, Zebedee's wife was probably the Salome mentioned in Mark 15, verse 40, and 16, verse 1, and also Matthew 27, verse 56, which would confirm the family's favorable financial situation. Uh, Salome contributed constantly to the ministry here. Now, why is this important for us to know? This is the reason. According to Luke, Herod had James killed before any of the other disciples. That's in Acts 12, verse 2, which makes him the first apostle to be martyred. Now, what that tells us, church, is this. Evidently, he posed a greater threat to the kingdom of darkness than Peter and John, the most famous disciples. What a legacy of faithfulness to the gospel. See, I grieve the fact that not very many people want to kill preachers today, especially here in our country. The fact that many people do not want to kill us anymore is an indictment on our craving for the approval of people. And we have the lesson from James here that if you are faithful to the gospel, yes, you may lose your head, but your legacy lives on. Do you know any Christian who is hated? Not for his obnoxiousness. I know several of those. But do you know any Christians who are hated for his or her faithfulness to the gospel? Cling to that person. Imitate that person because you are following a great legacy of one of the great apostles here, James. Now, here's an interesting, another interesting dynamic of that entire family, okay? One day, James' mother got a little carried away, and she asked Jesus like this, Matthew 20, verses 20 to 21, Say that in your kingdom these two sons of mine shall sit, one in your right hand and one in your left. 
That whole thing created tension with the other disciples, as you would imagine. But here's my point. Some of you are like James, John, Zebedee, and Salome. Just like that family. We're talking about family units now. Your family serves together imperfectly, yes, but with excellence. And you know what? Your dysfunctionality is an opportunity for you to be reminded of His grace. Ministry would not be the same without each of you. Now, we have several of these families here at Grace Baptist Church, as dysfunctional as they get. But they are excellent servants of the Lord. They recognize their imperfection, and they are constantly serving God. They embarrass one another in public. They tease one another. But you know what? They are faithful people. And ministry would not be the same without them. And I want them to multiply, because we're all dysfunctional in one way or another. May we all serve like you, if I'm describing your family. Now, let's look at John. John, along with his less prominent brother, they are sons of thunder, Mark 3, verse 17. But John wrote the Gospel of John, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. And he identifies as the disciple whom Jesus loved, John 13, verse 23. But here's another interesting fact about John. He wants you to know, he wants everybody to know he runs faster than Peter. Did you know that? Because when they were making their way to the uh, empty tomb, that's in John 20, verse 4, he made it very clear. That disciple, referring to himself, ran faster than Peter. He also beat the other guys to the cross from where Jesus asked him to care for Mary, his mother. Now, that speaks volumes of that man's family life and family dynamic. That's in John 19, verse 20. Now, with Peter and James, John belongs to the inner circle of friends to whom Jesus unveiled his divinity in the mountain of transfiguration. You will remember that story. And unlike the other 11, John died a natural death after the glorified Jesus showed up in the island of Patmos to give him the last book of the Bible. But here's what else John wants you to know. He wants you to know he's in better shape than Peter because he runs faster than him. He wants you to know that he has power to call out fire from heaven and all of that. But he uses the word love 39 times in his gospel and 34 times in his three epistles give or take, depending on the English Bible translation you use. But that's more than any other New Testament writer. Now, he also includes the word truth 39 times. Also, more than any of his fellow New Testament authors. That tells us something. Church, some of you this morning identify with the disciple of love and truth. Why? Because you are so committed to these attributes that Jesus even entrusts people to you, just like he did with his own mother to John. Because John is the disciple of truth and love, he entrusted his own mother to him. And he does the same to you. He entrusts people to your care. Because God knows that you always speak the truth in love to honor his son. And the church needs more Johns. Church not fewer. People who will always love people enough to tell them the truth. The church needs more people like you. May your tribe increase. Now let's look at Philip. Philip, the lover of horses, a strange but common Greek name at the time. Now, John describes how this man first met Jesus. Listen to this. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee, Jesus did, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law. And the prophets also wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So church evidently, like Andrew, Philip enjoyed bringing people to Christ. In fact, the two share that commitment. Let me show that to you in John 12, verses 20 to 22. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. 
These people then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and were making a request of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And church, what an example, again, of a man who delights in bringing people to Christ. People come to him and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Why? Because obviously God knew that he would bring people to Jesus Christ. And the question I have for you today is this. Do you live a life that is so clearly godly that people come to you and say, Sir or ma'am, I wish to see your Savior? If so, you are like Philip. Here's another interesting detail about his life. He struggled to understand the identity of Jesus. Do we identify with him or what? Listen to the rebuke, loving rebuke that Christ gave him. John 14 verse 9. Have I been with you so long a time, yet you have not come to know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So, see, evidently he struggled with his Christology. He struggled to understand the identity of Christ. But a second century bishop by the name of Polycrates documented that Philip took the gospel to Asia after all of this. We hear no more of him after the book of Acts. But evidently, he got his Christology right sometime after that. And some of you identify with Philip, church. You may not have all the answers. In fact, you have many questions yourself, but you delight in bringing people to him, to the one who has all the answers. And again, the church needs people like you. The church needs more Philips. Why, church? Because too many people are quick to answer, really just to betray their own ignorance, to, to reveal that they don't know what they're talking about. But like the lover of horses, you acknowledge your ignorance and you keep the main thing, the main thing, and you say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that, but let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. Now, you're, you're being just like Philip here. May your tribe increase. Now, the next name on the list, Bartholomew. We don't have a lot of information on this guy, only that his name means son of Tolmai. He also went by Nathaniel. That's what else we know about him. Now, if he is the same one from John 147, and I don't know that that's the case. If he is that same man, Jesus describes him as an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That's all we know. Now, let's talk about Thomas, also known as Didymus. Or the twin. So apparently he had a twin brother. But doubting Thomas is, is a term that we ascribe to him because of an incident that happened after the resurrection of Christ. And you all remember this. John 20 verse 24 says this. Unless I see his hands in the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. That's Thomas. Now, we are quick to call him doubting Thomas, but not too many people give him credit for his courage and for his confession. Eight days later... After this incident, his demonstrated lack of faith, Jesus showed up to him and invited him to touch his crucifixion wounds, followed by a loving rebuke. And then came the confession that the true church holds until this day. It came from the mouth of Thomas. My Lord and my God. He is affirming the divinity of Jesus Christ. That is the confession of Thomas. The true church holds on to that confession until this day. Some of you identify with the Didymus here, because you are the brainiacs of the group. You need proof. Unless you have proof, you will not believe. And you think through every possibility before you commit. And you know what? God has wired you this way. Praise the Lord. That's how he made you, and he has not made a mistake. Here's another feature of Thomas' personality, his courage. When Jesus clarified to the group that he wanted to go to Lazarus' funeral, every one of the disciples tried to dissuade Christ. Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. John 11 verse 16. 
Church, that's courage. Those are the words of someone who's willing to die for the cause of the gospel. And some of you display the same courage. You will follow Christ wherever he goes, even if it costs your life. Now, did you know, church, that this is the type of commitment that Jesus expects from all of us? May the Thomases among us rise up, fully aware of their weak faith, but willing to lead us in following Jesus wherever he leads. Now, this is a good place for us to stop. We will pick up the list next week. If you forget everything we talked about this morning, I hope you remember this. Peter's denial, James and John's arrogance, Philip's lack of understanding, and Thomas's weak faith do not define their character. Those are bumps on the road in their walk with God so that they can be better prepared to be used at full potential for Christ. The same is true for you. God will use the bumps on the road to train you in godliness. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. You'll also be able to order our second book, based on Pastor Pierre's sermon series. Ruth and the Kindness of God is an excellent read for anyone struggling to understand tragedy or deal with trauma. Get a copy today for you or someone you know that needs to hear how God uses difficult times for our good and His glory. Again, this book and Pastor Study of the Book of Revelation are both available on truthwithgrace.org. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.